New Year's Eve in Scotland includes lots of time-tested rituals for good luck. And you open at the strike of midnight, you open your front door and rush through and open the back door. So you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out. Coming up, we borrow a few old world customs for welcoming the new year. In America, no town beats New Orleans for a festive atmosphere all year long. It's not just that you could turn a corner and stumble upon an amazing band. It's that you could turn a corner and stumble upon so many things that are incredible about New Orleans. Guides from the Big Easy tell us what's really original about their city. And we remember historian David McCullough, who passed away recently. He dedicated his life to helping us better understand the people and events that shaped America. We'll revisit his conversation with us about the Wright brothers. That's when the world suddenly realized man can fly. Let's celebrate together as we look forward to a better year ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We pay tribute to one of the most respected American historians in our time, coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves. We'll revisit David McCullough's work on the Wright Brothers to remind us what's truly great about America. And local guides from New Orleans prepare to surprise us with insights into their city that you probably didn't expect. Let's make this an international new year by checking in with friends from Sweden, Croatia, Wales, and Scotland right now on their traditions for welcoming in the new year. Let's get ready to welcome in the new year European style. We'll get our annual visit from friends from Edinburgh in just a bit to hear about the rituals that greet the new year in the land of Auld Lang Syne. Let's start our holiday check-in Scandinavia style with Marita Bergman in Stockholm. Marita, Happy New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. How do you traditionally and typically celebrate the New Year in Stockholm and in Sweden? New Year, uh, that's an occasion for making party. Yeah. If uh, Christmas is uh, celebrated in the family, uh, New Year's is uh, celebrated with friends. With friends. Yeah. We, all, of course, organize a good meal. It uh, very, very often contains of seafood, crab, fish. A lot of wine and champagne. Wine and champagne, yeah. more than the traditional akavit. Yeah. We look in the television and also talk with our friends. We are, are talking about the past year and uh, making up also new goals for the new year. And 12 o'clock when you are going out seeing the firework, which is taking place all over, you shall predict your own new year by telling and promising wishes for the new year. And on the very first day of the year, Americans gather around with their families and watch parades on TV and watch the uh, football games. What do the Swedes do? Take a long morning before they take their strong coffee after a, a night celebration. Watching TV, there is always competitions in skiing going downhill. And then is also the concert from Vienna. Well, that's interesting. So all over Europe then, or in much of Europe, they would be celebrating it in a similar way, enjoying a traditional concert from Vienna and ski racing in the Alps with many nations participating. Yeah. Feeling a little groggy after your last night's party. Uh, We need the coffee, yes. We need the coffee. Yeah. Tack så mycket. Gott nytår. Gott nytår. Yes. Marita Bergman from (laughs) Stockholm. Happy New Year. For a look at New Year's festivities in the capital of Croatia, we're joined now by Marjan Kriskovic. Marjan, what do people in Zagreb usually do to get ready for the New Year? Well, people are getting ready. They're just uh, relaxing after the heavy meals the Christmas holidays brought with them. 
and uh, they're going to replace the uh, more spiritual experience of Christmas and get ready for the big New Year's party. And then what happens? People bring out uh, champagne, their big fireworks, and of course at midnight everything goes crazy. Does everybody just collapse the next day, or are there family festivities on New Year's Day? Or in America we all watch football or watch a parade on TV. What happens? New Year's Day, one of the memories that I always have connected with it is waking up the following morning and you're waking up by the tunes of the uh, concert from Vienna. And most people just tune into uh, the first program of Croatian television that has live transmission from Vienna, a close connection to the Central European culture. You celebrate European culture on channel number one, Croatian <laughs> right. national <Yes>. TV, <laughs> listening to the Vienna Philharmonic. Yes. There is a sort of a, a funny reason you have gifts that are given on New Year's Day, actually, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Croatia. Mm-hmm. How do you manage to get gifts on New Year's Day when uh, most people just get them on Christmas? <laughs> Well, uh, in the past, in the uh, times of communist Yugoslavia, they tried to put the two holidays blend together in people's heads so they would replace Christmas with uh, New Year's. Oh, because the communists didn't want Christian holiday. Exactly. Okay, so you've got to keep the holiday. That's right. They want to put it in something more atheistic. Exactly. New Year's Day, is there some sort of a gift giver? What happened to Santa Claus? Santa Claus gets replaced as well. He's called uh, Died Mraz, which translates to Father Frost. And when you get together with all the family, all together, multi-generation, are there any traditional foods? I, I know you've got uh, Sarma. Uh, especially after a lot of the heavy foods from the Christmas season, you want something to clear up your stomach. And one of the good foods is Sarma, which is basically these cabbage rolls filled with uh, mincemeat cabbage soup, so something sour to bring out all that heavy food and alcohol. And so you're just... getting off on a better footing here. Exactly. After you're, you're surviving <laughs> the holidays. You're starting your new... Are you starting the year with resolutions to be sure that you are healthier or, or more thoughtful? Of course. So. And they work usually just as little as they do anywhere else. <laughs> <laughs> Marian Kriskovic, I imagine when you get together with your friends, you raise a toast for the new year in your beautiful language, Croatian. Can you share that with our listeners across the United States? New Year's is approaching. Give us a toast and a, and a New Year's greeting from your country, Croatia. Sretna nova godina, puno sreće i zdravlja u novoj godini. And in English, what would that be? A happy New Year, all the luck and good health in the upcoming year. Different parts of the British Isles each have their own personality and their own customs surrounding the holidays. Martin Delandovich joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves. Martin's been raised with a deep love of the history and traditions of his homeland, Wales. How would you celebrate New Year's Eve in Wales? New Year's Eve in Wales nowadays is uh, much done the same as it is elsewhere. We tend to have the fireworks. Fireworks at midnight. Uh, London's got uh, the uh, Trafalgar Square activities. What is considered the cultural Trafalgar Square or Times Square of Wales? Is there something like that? You get it in Cardiff. Down on Cardiff Bay, you get fireworks. Now, what's the drink of choice? Are people drinking wine or hard liquor or beer or what? Beer is the most popular drink, and, and, and sadly, I think so. Beer was, was wassailing. Uh, which in Wales, the blessing of orchards for fruit coming. And that was done in beer. The other one that customly got at New Year's in Wales was Kalenig or Klenig, where groups of children would come to your house and, and you were supposed to give them money. They'd give. What would they do in return? Would they sing? Would they... they would poems. There would be some singing. Uh, one of the old. Uh, Klen- Young people come door to door reading, right. uh, reciting poetry. Yes, so yes. Welsh. And then you, you give them a present? 
Yes, one of them is Mikodais Hedu Masom T, and this is from South Wales. I'm Kord and Pastum Gidami, a Damaneges Arachtraus, Sev Hanun Kord, a Barachaus. And what this is, is um, I got up early this morning, I got my stick and I got my bag and I came out. And here's my message to you fill my bag with bread and cheese. I got my bag with bread and cheese. Would bread and cheese satisfy the kids these days? Well, no, I don't think so. Now, in the United States, we. Uh dedicate the uh, first day of the year to overcoming the partying from the last night and watching a great football game. What's what's the activity on the first day of the year in Wales? You get New Year's rugby because rugby ah. is the game, particularly in South Wales. Uh, there was a game... New called, Year's rugby. Is it sort of yeah. a, the big cup game then? Yeah. You, you get, on New Year's. It's, it's not the big cup games, but it's all over Christmas. On Boxing Day, the day after Christmas... And on New Year's Day, you get these rugby games. And in days gone by, and we're talking, oh, certainly recorded in the 17th century, there was a game called Knappan, which approximated to rugby, but it was played between whole villages. And there were was wow. horrible, bloody things where all you had to do was get this thing from one village to the other one to win. And, oh, dear, broken bones, head and throat. I love the way that every culture celebrates the holidays a different way, and every culture has its own way to wish someone a happy Christmas and a beautiful New Year. Wish me in Welsh a happy holiday. And specifically, what was that? That was Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Thanks, Martin. Thank you. Another corner of Great Britain that's rich in New Year's traditions is Scotland. Anne Doig and Ken Hanley are joining us now to remind us of the delightful ways they and their neighbors bring in the new year. Anne and Ken, thanks for being here. You're very welcome. Thank Pleasure you for that. having us, Rick. Are you looking forward to New Year's in Edinburgh? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. How do you celebrate New Year's Eve in Edinburgh? Uh, very traditionally. I know we have what's said to be the biggest street party in the world, but, you know, if you're going for tradition, which I still do and Anne still does, then you make sure the house is clean. <laughs> so the house, in other words, has got to be clean. And you make sure that you've got enough drink for your friends and things like that. People go first footing. And to go first footing properly, you have to have a piece of black coal, a wee piece of cake, and a wee bottle of whiskey. What's first footing? It goes, you go to friends, you just tap well, a you door. You go visiting, and, and they're not going to turn you away. Absolutely not. And I think if your first footer, traditionally in Scotland, is tall, dark and handsome, that means that you're going to have a year of good luck. It's quite interesting. It has to be dark. And I wonder if anyone knows why it has to be a dark Mm. person, dark here. It dates back to the attacks by the Vikings, the blonde, tall Vikings. If you were blonde, you might be a threat. So it had to be a dark person. And you open at the strike of midnight, you open your front door and rush through and open the back door. So you're welcoming in the new year and letting the old year out. So there's all these traditions that we adhere to. (laughs) Wow. Now, is there something that is like a countdown in in Edinburgh? It's fireworks, really. There's a big street party, you see, so they'll be counting down on the stage. There are entertainers and bands playing. And then all of a sudden, there's an explosion of fireworks over Edinburgh Castle. But then you get down with your neighbours and you open your front door. Absolutely. And you open the back door. Yes. Total strangers can turn up at your door. And And everyone's welcome. And everyone's welcome. And they come in and you offer a drink, you offer a piece of cake, you, you have a wee blather, you know, and then That's you move along. And a wee blather is a wee little talk. A wee blather is a little talk. Have a wee 
together. And it then, sort of gets known in the community who's got open house. That's what happens. Okay. And if you've got open house, then everyone piles in to visit you. If you're in Scotland on New Year's Eve, it's just like one big open house. People are on the streets. They've got their coal and their drink and their cake, and they're going to yep. knock on a stranger's door and celebrate the new year. Absolutely. We all sing uh, Old Lang Syne. Old Lang Syne. Yeah, yeah. yeah we that? do. That's oh. Scottish, isn't it? Yes. yes. Uh, Robert Burns. That's yeah. Robert Burns. What, yes. what does that mean, Old Lang Syne? For the sake of Old Lang Syne. A lot of different interpretations. I would say for old friends, remembering, remembering. friends for, for friendship's sake. And you know the song. Sing the song for me. It's an uh, old sentimental yeah. uh, song, oh, you know. Don't be forgotten, never brought to mind. Should all the acquaintance be forgot for the sake of old Lang Syne? Now, here's the hand, my trusty friend, and here's the hand, oh mine. And it goes on. And, and you're all scene. holding hands. It's this inbuilt thing in the Scots that, uh, you know, it's been great to see you. We don't want to see you go, but because you're going away, for the sake of old Lang Syne, Keep that memory, keep everything, that heartfelt thing. So that's the, that's the punchline of the lyric is, for the sake, sake of, of old Lang Syne. The old, sign, the old good sake old of times. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> for the sake of old Lang Syne, Happy New Year. <laughs> and happy, happy New Year, year to you. All the best to you. Happy New Year, Rick Boy. <laughs> Get ready to be surprised by America's most original city, New Orleans, in just a minute. And we'll honor the memory of historian David McCullough, coming up on Travel with Rick Steves. If you've ever been to New Orleans, you can probably conjure up the smell of something wonderful that you ate there. Maybe it's a spicy sausage or a big dish of gumbo, or even a quiet coffee and beignet to ease in the morning. The city's French, Spanish, West African, and Native American heritage is famous for blending it all into something tasty and original. New Orleans is where what comes down the Mississippi River encounters what comes up the Gulf from the Caribbean. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're taking a deeper dive to explore what it is about the city that could only happen in New Orleans. Our guides are Andrew Ferrier and Sandy Hester. Andrew and Sandy, thanks for being with us again. Thank you. You guys deal with uh, visitors to New Orleans as a living. And Andrew, when you are orienting somebody to New Orleans, you got to kind of not overwhelm them with the complicated history. But what slices of the history and the cultures that that make the culture of New Orleans do you want to be sure that people appreciate? Yeah, I find that a lot of times Americans traveling to New Orleans have a sense that the city is French and it's a party town. And then Europeans traveling to New Orleans have a sense that it's European and it's an artsy town. And then travelers from other places, it's kind of more of a scattershot impression. So there's always a direction to pull an impression in. A lot of times people don't know to expect that, say, the French Quarter is very heavy on Spanish architecture, that it's really the main thing that you see there. And particularly when we talk about something like food, 
oftentimes because people who travel to our city, especially from within the U.S., are more familiar with French cuisine, that's the resemblance they see when really the the main roots of our food are West African. And so hmm. it just kind of takes assessing what a person already associates with the place. And then we love to spring some surprises on them. So, Sandy, if I'm coming to New Orleans and you want me to have a memorable uh, edible experience, uh, what's something you'd uh, introduce me to that I might not know about otherwise? Well, I think everybody probably knows about gumbo when they come here. But I, I think one of the things that they might not know about is um, char-grilled oysters, hmm. which are uh, delicious. And the divier the place, the better to get them. That's the thing about New Orleans. You might walk by someplace and think, mm, I don't know if that's such a great culinary option. But it most likely is. If it looks like you can get a real cheap beer and your food, it's probably the place you want to spend a little bit of time. But uh, Char-Grilled Oysters typically comes in because we had some immigrant waves coming in from the former Yugoslavia. So that's a bit of a influence coming in from that region of the world. So many influences in New Orleans. And Andrew, if I'm going to go out to a breakfast, what, what would distinguish a breakfast in New Orleans? Yeah, you know, chiefly we are the inventors of brunch. So what's going to distinguish a breakfast in New Orleans is that we're going to push it late and there's going to be alcohol involved more often than not. <laughs> this is the thing that's easiest to find on a weekend for sure because it's it's when our travelers tend to feel most at ease indulging in that. And it's when the schedule of work for those of us who live here and have jobs uh, are able to do it. But at home, I think that is it. That's a pattern that certainly... I won't say it out and out predominates, but it's not uncommon to the kind of mix of different cultures that you see immigrating here. I mean, as you get later in the day and even during breakfast, one of the really common items you'll see is what gets called French bread a lot of the time, but is our po'boy bread. And when you see the bakeries that make it, some of the really common ones are like Leidenheimer, Cartazzo, Dongfeng. Lots and lots of different cultures end up putting their stamp on food, even when it's something, you know, in that case, Germans, Italian or Vietnamese people are the ones making the French bread. I love talking about New Orleans because it just it's never ending the dimensions of the city. And as you mentioned, a lot of people start their uh, their drinking uh, before lunch at brunch. And if somebody's uh, been drinking a little bit too much late at night, a lot of cultures have a food that that people go to, to to try to go home on uh, without being as drunk as they are. Uh, in uh, Spain, it would be chocolate conchuros. Uh, in Vienna, it would be uh, the sausages. What is a late-night snack that somebody who's been out drinking might be thankful that is an option? The beignet. The beignet. <laughs> been, describe that. Uh, fried dough rolled around in powdered sugar. So you can't go wrong with that. <laughs> if you're used to a churro, you're going to be right at home, minus minus the chocolate. Um, okay. It's something we've had a few variations on over time. You you find them filled in some places. You find them done as like savory appetizers some places. And then there's a, a another dish called a kala, which is a, uh, an older rice-based version of that. Well, the beignet, when we started marketing ourselves for tourism in New Orleans, we decided to market ourselves as being solely French. And so the uh, the cala gets tamped down uh, and replaced by the beignet because that's a West, it's a Nupe word. It's a Middle Belt Nigerian tribal word. So you can't be eating a West African sweet if you're trying to be French. But kalas are really good. So describe that a little more clearly. What is that exactly? Uh, it's a rice fritter, deep fried. And okay. it was usually originally rolled in honey. But today they put powdered sugar on it hmm. to compete with the beignet. There's a restaurant called Elizabeth's. In the Bywater neighborhood that makes it, oof, it is, I will take that over a beignet mm -hmm. any day. 
you know, you guys are, are tour guides. I bet food tours are a big deal in New Orleans because they're, they're popular all over the world now, and, and you're blessed to be guides in a city with lots of fun food that you can eat in a little hole in the wall or on a stand or take away and uh, cobble together quite an experience, I would think. Absolutely. The, the culinary businesses in the French Quarter generally do not lack for demand, so the the presence of tours that will go into a building and give you a food sample, it's not quite as common as you'd expect, although our company has one where the, the purchase of food samples is optional, but primarily it is a culinary history tour that then, you know, you're taking it with a foodie and they can put you on track yeah. about things that are going to be worth your time. I think that's a great experience uh, almost wherever I travel. We're looking at what's original and unique about New Orleans right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Andrew Ferrier was raised in a small town a bit upriver. In addition to working in local theater, Andrew hosts walking tour videos on YouTube for Free Tours by Foot New Orleans, where he also works as a local tour guide. Sandy Hester is also an artist and writer with a master's in history and made New Orleans her home more than 25 years ago. She also hosts walking tours with Free Tours by Foot. You'll find links to their work with the online notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Let's talk about music for just a minute here, because when I go to New Orleans, I'm interested in music. It's known as the birthplace of jazz. Uh, what was happening in New Orleans uh, 120 years ago that, that brought that all about? It's a really interesting transition period. So what you're looking at there is the aftermath of the American Civil War, the famous West African-style drumming that happens in Congo Square just outside of the French Quarter on Sundays preceding the Civil War comes to an end sometime not long after. So while the city was a place that regularly heard fairly unaltered West African music on a weekly basis, it's after the war with the arrival of rural former enslaved people into the city, bringing blues, bringing spirituals, that the city's sound really starts to change. Those rhythms reorganize into the music of marching brass bands and kind of an American military style into what were called Creole dance bands in town. And they really marry up with the sounds of blues and spirituals and ragtime to give you what we call traditional jazz, the earliest form of jazz that is really a Euro-African fusion. People have usually heard it before, but thinking of it as a sort of Latin-style fusion music, oftentimes that lens is new to them. So I would think when you're going to anywhere for music, you can buy a ticket and go to a formal concert. You can go to a bar that has a cover charge, or you, you pay the cover charge indirectly by buying drinks at the bar, or you just uh, enjoy um, musicians out on the street. To what degree are each of those three you know, zones for enjoying music uh, part of the story in New Orleans? Those are all a really big part of the New Orleans tradition. I mean, bars have a, a huge value in the kind of day-to-day -day small gig life of a professional musician, and they're often where people get exposed to a new band for the first time, the people who are music fans who live here. But street music is enormously important, and it also is something that really works for the people who do it. If I had somebody in my company who I was looking to show a really good time musically and the hour was right, I would, without hesitation, first priority walk them right behind Jackson Square to the intersection of Royal and St. Peter Streets and show them where Doreen Ketchens and her family play in the late mornings and afternoons for several days a week. This is a family band that's been playing at the same spot for about 35 years. Doreen is a world-class clarinetist, and in a way that I think works really well for a lot of our travelers, they are incredible jazz 
technicians. They can do great stuff with your classic jazz standards. Anybody who is serious about jazz will get what they want there and hear really incredible renderings of it. She can hold a note longer than some people live. Hmm. But then you also have them realizing that they're working with an introductory audience a lot of the time and they will play like TV show themes from the 80s and 90s cartoon repertoire and they will dignify that stuff with a great solo. So Mm. it's really, there's an understanding that when you meet with travelers, you are introducing them. You You get to be a first impression and street musicians are really good at that. You know, I think there's something um, organic about the city itself that that nurtures beautiful, fun-loving music. Uh, my niece is a street musician. She plays the accordion. She used to live in New York, and she moved to New Orleans. It's the best thing she could ever do. And it's like New Orleans is her muse. And, and uh, it, it just the environment, the culture just breeds more musicians and people that are sort of poets, flowered children, you know, (laughs) musical, uh, uh, you know, dreamers. And there's no shortage of people to get together and jam and and march and parade. And uh, how is New Orleans to you as far as a a muse for musicians? Oh, wow. It's, you know, it's it's funny because there are kind of two parallel histories in New Orleans. There is an incredible family genesis story for so many people where you will get these incredible New, New Orleans musical families who will generate just one person after another. I mean, most famously right now, John Batiste. The Batiste family is enormous, and he just happens to be the one that the most people have heard of. But Trombone Shorty, who has a, a big presence at that city too, is from the Andrews family. So that's one big axis of it. That's how the tradition gets passed down. Hmm. But then you also have especially in the years after Katrina, a lot of really enthusiastic musicians who move into the city looking to be a part of this really vital scene. They may bring kind of a different style with them, and it's in that jamming that those two different maybe kind of dialects end up speaking to each other. So I think for the people who are from here, your muse is that like the world comes to you. Yeah. You get to have ah. incredible people from everywhere show up on your doorstep. Now, Sandy, when you think about that, the music comes to you. Some of my most magical sort of mem- memories of New Orleans are enjoying street music. Uh, right now, I'm just sort of into a band called, I think it's Tuba Skinny or something yes. like that. Yes. Yeah, and it, you can walk down the right street and be at the right place at the right time and just have an amazing experience. Or you can be back at your hotel flipping through channels and just, you know, looking for something on TV. What is your tip for really connecting with that impromptu, magical, Tuba Skinny kind of fun? Um, get off Bourbon Street. Ah, very good. I mean, I know. I mean, that sounds like okay. Well, great, Sandy, but it's true. Get out and explore the city on foot. Mm-hmm. It's such a walkable city, and it's not just that you could turn a corner and stumble upon an amazing band. It's that you could turn a corner and stumble upon so many things that are incredible about New Orleans. You might find a street poet doing their thing. You know, when you think about New Orleans, it's the music is definitely vibrant. But the artistic scene in New Orleans is vibrant as well, whether that is like street art that's being painted throughout the city, whether that is writers, poets, that has historically been the case with New Orleans, um, bringing in very famous writers and poets into the city. So it's it's just vibrant across the board. And if you only stay on Bourbon Street or you only stay within a couple of block radius of Bourbon Street, you're missing so much. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you don't get out and into neighborhoods like the Treme, you don't know things that are unfolding across the city of New Orleans. You know, I don't know. I got to say, if if you are 
uh, a person who really misses the the uh, fraternity party scene at your university, you you should go to Bourbon Street and just move in because it's made to order for frat parties. Am I just an old fogey or something? But if if look, you there's just only get three away reasons a local goes to Bourbon. One is we work there. Two, we're crossing it. Three, you're visiting and we can't talk you out of it. And then we just walk you there and leave. <laughs> okay, that's good. Hey, um, we're out of time, but, you know, this has been so much fun. We've been talking with Andrew Ferrier and Sandy Hester, and they are guides for a company called Free Tours by Foot New Orleans, which offers themed walking tours of the city. Their website is freetoursbyfoot.com, and we have a link to their YouTube channel where Andrew and Sandy host different uh, virtual tours, and you'll find it in this week's show notes at ricksteves.com slash radio. I'd like to let each of you just give me the pros and cons of visiting during Mardi Gras because, you know, you can go to Munich during Oktoberfest and you can make a case for going there then or finding the same fun at different times of year without all the crowds and, and, uh, and chaos. I'll just start with you, Andrew. Pros and cons of visiting during Mardi Gras. The cons are pretty self-evident because it is a very crowded, very logistically challenging time to get around. I think the pros kind of underlie that because a lot of people think that Mardi Gras is a day when in fact Mardi Gras is a season. Carnival is a season that leads up to Mardi Gras and a lot of the most exciting stuff happens in the weeks leading up. I walk with the parade that kicks the season off, not the very first one, but one of the first ones, which is a, a, a parody of the Roman god of wine called the crew of Chewbacca. And we do like silly sci-fi cosplay on a weekend when not a whole lot else is happening. And so the the pro is that with a little bit of research, you can find something that may not be the glitziest parade. It may not show up on TV, but it might be something really DIY and lovable that is completely within reach without you having to break the bank or exhaust yourself. So in other words, you're enjoying Fat Tuesday, literally Mardi Gras, uh, on a day before that Tuesday. And while other people are just having to be there on Tuesday when it when it peaks. Precisely. And Sandy, what is your advice for uh, Mardi Gras? And how might you enjoy the same Mardi Gras or a similar Mardi Gras fun uh, at time, other times of year that are less expensive and less crowded? I mean, my advice, if you're, if you're coming, yeah, definitely, if you're coming for Mardi Gras, you know, sure, if it's your first time to the city of New Orleans, go on Bourbon Street for Mardi Gras. Chances are you'll see things you've never seen before in your entire life, and it will shock your sensibilities. And so you should see it. But you should also get off of Bourbon Street. Um, I think, you know, a lot of people don't know, for example, that the Mardi Gras Indians are going to parade on Mardi Gras Day. So if you stay in the French Quarter, you won't see them. But they are parading throughout other neighborhoods in the city of New Orleans. So it's good, again, to just do what I said earlier, which is get out and explore mm -hmm. and see what's happening. Also, the best costumes will be outside of, of the French Quarter because the locals are, I mean, we have a, almost every local has what's known as a costume closet. Ah, so, ah, I bet. So we we work on our costumes all year long to unveil something that usually is pretty politically on point. Yeah. You know, or at least is dealing with what is happening in the world at the moment. So, yeah, get outside in the French Quarter and you'll see amazing costumes. I love that. Every real New Orleans person is likely to have uh, a whole section of their wardrobe dedicated to costumes. Absolutely. That's good. Hey, Sandy Hester and Andrew Ferrier, thank you so much for giving us a better appreciation of New Orleans and best wishes with your work as you do tours for free tours by foot in New Orleans. Happy travels. Thank you, Rick. It's an honor. Thank you so much.
We have links to Sandy and Andrew's prior New Orleans interviews with us in our show archives at ricksteves.com slash radio. They were so proud of him in his native Pittsburgh, they named a bridge after him. David McCullough was one of our generation's most beloved writers, and he popularized American history. His books were instant bestsellers and spanned topics from building the Brooklyn Bridge to digging the Panama Canal, and from the Johnstown Flood to the American Revolution. His biographies of John Adams and Harry Truman were made into HBO specials. We were saddened to hear of David McCullough's passing last August. As a tribute, up next we'll bring you his Travel with Rick Steves interview about the Wright Brothers, which he recorded with us in 2015 as he was celebrating 50 years with his publisher. David McCullough explores how two humble brothers from Dayton changed how we think about the world. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. His 55 honorary degrees were just a fraction of the awards David McCullough received in his 89 years, including two Pulitzers and a Presidential Medal of Freedom. McCullough was one of the nation's most celebrated chroniclers of American history. We were honored to have him join us in the Travel with Rick Steves studio a few years ago as he shared his enthusiasm for what he learned about Orville and Wilbur Wright. His biography of the Wright brothers had just been published and was an immediate bestseller. Here's our conversation with David McCullough. Well, I'm delighted to be with you, and I want to congratulate you on your work, which I follow with greatest interest and pleasure. I think we both appreciate public broadcasting. We do, but we also appreciate the importance of travel. Yeah. Of going places where things happened and understanding what happened and why and the people there. And the refreshing, invigorating spirit that it gives one's outlook on life. I try to go everywhere that any event in any of the books that I write took place. And I've stressed that all along, and I've encouraged students that if you want to write about something, go to where it happened. You know, I think I can tell from reading your books that you can relate to the place. Absolutely. You're grounded in the spot. The place is very important, particularly the place where people grew up. What happened on December 17, 1903? And why was that important enough for you to write about the men who made that happen? First of all, where it happened was on the outer banks of North Carolina, which at that time there was no bridge over there. There were no roads. It was sand dunes and beaches and a very small population just barely getting by, primarily fishing. And the Wright brothers went there to test their flying ideas because they needed continuous wind. And there was plenty of wind out there. And they loved the idea of a soft landing on sand, not on rock or that would help. hard earth. And there were very few people to be curious and asking too many questions and taking up their time. And they'd never been away from home. They'd never seen the ocean. They traveled over 700 miles from Dayton, Ohio, in their bicycle shop. And it was like nothing they'd ever seen or experienced in their lives, and they loved every minute of it, despite the hurricanes and the sieges of mosquitoes and all the other things that went wrong. It was for them, it was the work they loved to do and their courage and their refusal to give in when they failed and their ingenuity and their attention to detail were all of a sort that we can learn from no matter what we do or no matter what we strive to do. It's amazing. That was 
you mentioned in your book that you were 15 years old when Orville died. That's and, right. Uh, I could have known him. You uh, could have known him. And think of what's happened since Oh, absolutely. Then, in one lifetime. But that Orville was the one that flew that day, December 17th, very cold day, 20, 25-mile-an-hour winds. And, of course, nobody thought they would succeed. They weren't sure they'd succeed. They never... What it was was they were the glider that they had developed and put a motor on it. As a matter of fact, you wrote about that in your book. It almost sounds like a legal responsibility. The first mechanically powered, heavier-than-air machine to achieve controlled, sustained flight with a pilot on board. Right. 120 feet, 12 seconds. That's all it took. Orville. Yep. Yes. However, the brothers are taking turns. It was Orville's turn. And they kept on flying that day. And by the end of the day, or close to the end of the day, Wilbur had flown over 500 feet or close to half a mile. So they, so they, they really day. knew they'd done it. That was the day they they'd, broke through. Yeah, oh, yes. It's one of the most important days in all of history. It changed history. Do you think they knew that that first 120 feet in 12 seconds was the most difficult? And after yes. that, the arc of progress would just yes. zoom up. Remember, they've never tried it before. Right. This is their first time ever to try this machine they've made. And the fact that even though it bounced like a bucking Bronco horse before it settled down, they knew instantly we've done it. So air is like matter, and they can cruise through it now. Well, they learned to ride the wind. Ride the by, wind. By studying oh. soaring birds. Very simple. You must have read a lot of letters and do this primary research. Did you get a sense, uh, David, in anything that you read that, that they thought much about the future of this, what an impact it would have on domestic travel, on no. tourism? No, or they really didn't think much about that. In mm-hmm. fact, they were asked, do you think there will be a, a plane that will fly the ocean? They said mm-hmm. no. <laughs> but they had a good reason because in order to have a, an engine that's strong enough to do that, it would have to carry so much gasoline and oh, yeah. so much water that the weight would preclude it. Well, they hadn't. That was beyond their imagination. They hadn't at the figured time. on an air-cooled engine, oh. which was invented very shortly after by a man named another American named Charles Lawrence. Now there were a lot of people trying to figure this out. It seems like there was a frenzy of inventors trying to make a flying machine back then. What do you think were the unique skills that gave the Wright brothers their winning combination? Because they, they didn't have the big money by, the, them. by studying the soaring birds, mm-hmm. watching how they used the ends of their wings. How could they possibly stay up there? without flapping their wings. Yeah. Well, these are two bicycle riders. These are two bicycle manufacturers. And they realize it's balance. They're balancing on the wind. We balance on the road. They are balancing on the wind. So how do they control that balance? And how do they bank and turn? So once they figured that out, they created what they call wing warping, where they could twist the wings so that they would could bank and turn ex- almost exactly the way a soaring bird does. So did they complement each other in their skills, Wilbur and Orville, or was one of them more dominant and and more important? I would say yes to both. Wilbur was the genius. Wilbur was the older brother. He was was the boss, the big brother. And he was also truly, literally a genius. Orville was very clever and ingenious mechanically, but he didn't have the reach of mind that Wilbur did. Wilbur was an absolutely amazing human being. So they were the right combination, the, oh, right, yeah. the right duo. They both were. Neither of them ever finished high school. They had no technical training. But it was like homeschooling with their preacher father, right? Well, the preacher father who insisted that they read. Right. This preacher read. father who gave them a full liberal arts education. They had to read history. They read literature. They read They read everything. You know, a surprise from reading your book was the importance of their sister. We never hear about Catherine, but she was was exceptional as well. Well, one of the joys of writing the book was to bring Catherine's front and center stage because she deserves it. Talk about credit long overdue. 
She was a pistol. She was bright. She was full of ideas. She was full of humor. She was also had a hot temper. She could get wrathy, as she said. She stood about five feet one, but she had no trouble whatsoever holding her own. She was a school teacher, taught Greek and Latin in the local Dayton High School. But she was always there when they needed her, and she kept them on the track. And her letters, which have survived, as theirs have, are the greatest testimony to their father's insistence on using the English language, not only correctly, but effectively. They were incapable of writing a dull letter or a short one. And there, there are thousands of them. The vivid detail in your book is just remarkable. And all I could think is, did these guys write their letters with an appreciation of history? Did they know that, that this might be of some I don't value? think so. I think their notes, their professional correspondence, their professional papers and presentations to professional groups and so forth, definitely. Mm-hmm. But as far as the family correspondence, it was all very personal, very revealing, very private, and terrific because that's how you can get inside their lives. It's the human beings in this story that interests me most. By the time I was halfway through work on this book, I realized even if they hadn't succeeded, I would have wanted to have written this book. So remarkable are they as human beings. And it's never more apparent than when they went to France. Never more apparent. We're honoring the memory of historian David McCullough today on Travel with Rick Steves by revisiting his 2015 visit with us. His book, The Wright Brothers, had just been released. We also have links to his interviews on The Greater Journey, where he explored how great American inventors, scientists, thinkers, and artists went out of their way to learn from the French in 19th century Paris. And David shared with us his favorite historical sites to visit as well. You'll find links to those interviews in the notes for program number 699 at ricksteves.com radio. David, it must have been expensive. And I just can't help but wonder, how did they fund this this whole mission of theirs? They did everything themselves. First of all, they built everything themselves. They didn't have somebody else build things for them. And the money that they used to spend on their experiments was taken from their rather modest profits from their bicycle shop. They, they just didn't sell bicycles. They made bicycles. And it was a time when bicycling was a big fad. So there right. was big market for so it. That was opportune for them. But To give you an example, the head of the Smithsonian, who was a very famous scientist, Samuel Langley, spent something like $50,000 of public money, Smithsonian Institution money, Mm. and another $20,000 of private money that was given to him by wealthy friends to develop his airplane, aerodrome, he called it, and it did nothing but shoot up in the air (laughs) and then dive into the Potomac River. What the Wright brothers' plane, the plane they flew at Kitty Hawk, on that famous day, December 17, 1903, that whole thing cost less than $1,000. They never had any financial backer. They never had any great institution or foundation or university behind them. They had no political pool. They did it all themselves, everything. It's a great American story. And they were laughed at. They were ignored. <laughs> they were yeah. mocked. Now, did they really, when you look at it from an international point of view and so on, did they deserve the credit? for inventing the airplane. Is there any Absolutely question about yes. that? Because no there, was, there was other stuff happening. Yes, and, and there are other people keep claiming this. No, they absolutely did it themselves. And it's all on record. That's the other thing. Some of these other claims, there's nothing, no proof, no okay. photographs, no nothing. So they knew about that. They had a, a little bit of yes, they, pride. Yes, they, they, they were very, they wanted to have their place in history be authentic and provable. How did they work to authenticate? 
They took photographs of everything they did. So I mean, on the cover of your book, this is the first— That's the first flight that's ever. That's the first flight. It's one of the most historic events in all of history, one of the most historic and important photographs of all of history. And they, they had somebody else take it with their camera. That's reproduced from the original glass plate, and it's as sharp and clear as it had been taken yesterday. You know, when we look at that airplane, it looks so frail— how did they land a plane like that on those first? Without, well, they, I mean, were land, they, they were landing on sand, and they're just right. coming. They, they couldn't use wheels because so the sand— to a halt. Yes, and they took off on a little railing like a track, okay. which was composed of two-by-fours. And it all was very primitive. And if you see the original plane, which is on view in the Smithsonian Institution, you wonder how in the world they do it. It's also much bigger than you think it's going to be. This is a big plane. Now, David, this is a travel show, and we're all dreaming about traveling. And it is so clear when, when we read your books, you have traveled and you've been to these places. If we're inspired by the Wright brothers in your book, what's a travel tip you'd give us? Where should we go to see this stuff? Well, you should definitely go to Kitty Hawk. Right. It's a national park. You can see exactly where they took off. Everything's there. And a wonderful museum. Mm-hmm. And you should definitely go to the Ford Museum in Dearborn, Michigan, right outside of Detroit, where the home that they grew up in, which was all important to their... Sh- shaping their, their whole outlook on life, Outside how, of Detroit. how they were raised at home, and the bicycle shop where they built the first airplane that ever flew in the history of the world is right there. And you should go to Paris, and you should go to Le Mans, just southwest of Paris, the racetrack town, where for the first time, Wilbur Wright flew a plane demonstrating to a, an audience, to a public, that man could fly. It was the eighth day of August in 1908, the eighth day of the eighth month of the eighth year. And that's when the world suddenly realized man can fly. That's five years later. They were struggling for five years. It took them five years, years because to... nobody believed that no, they could do it. Nobody they wouldn't even attention. bother to come look at it. So the French were the ones that said, hey, yes, these guys are they something. Came, they'd heard about it, came over and invited <laughs> them to come to Paris. They didn't want to do it. They wanted, they're very patriotic Americans. But their, our government slammed the door in their face about five times. And they were sick of it, and understandably. Yeah. Whereas the French were keenly interested in aviation, the future of aviation. And once they did that, thousands of people came to Le Mans by the trainload every day from all over France and all over Europe. And you can go there today in the same place where that flight was taken off. You can walk where the, the hotel was at Po. They also flew down at Po, which is a beautiful town, way down by the Spanish border. So did they box the plane up and put it on the oh, boat? Oh, yeah. yeah, put it on a boat. And assembled it. Yes, Europe. it had to reassemble because yeah. the, the customs, the French customs official. <laughs> there was no box. I have an airplane They uncrated the, the box, and they did it in such a rough, ignorant way that they broke just about everything. Oh, and poor no. Wilbur had to put it all back to really virtually remanufacture it himself right there. So that was Wilbur that went to France, just one of them. Yes, and Wilbur responded to Europe like very few Americans ever have. But suddenly, for the first time, he went into a major art exhibit, art museum, never had seen it. He would take every spare moment he had to go to the Louvre. He wrote these wonderful letters home about which paintings he liked and which he thought were overrated, which school of painting he responded to. And honestly, no graduate student there to uh, become an art historian could have written anything. And he wrote them to his sister and his father, knowing they wanted to hear about it. But greatest of all are the letters he wrote from Le Mans about the incredible cathedral at Le Mans, which nobody ever writes about, but he responded to 
with a wholehearted awe and detail about this cathedral, which is both Romanesque and Gothic. And that's one of the reasons he loved it, because he could see so much so history. He was instrumental life. in bringing the modern age, the, the age of flying into the world. Yes. And then he was so just enthralled with the wonders yes. of the yes. culture of the past. Well, he talks about how in the Gothic nave, it goes up and up to a clear story where there's magnificent stained glass windows letting the light in. And he said, and you sense this desire to reach for the sky. Well, of course, that's exactly what he's doing. That's what Gothic was all about, I think. And that's what Orville and Wilbur were all about. We lost one of our greatest American historians when David McCullough died on August 7th, 2022. We're revisiting his conversation with us, which we recorded just after his book about the Wright brothers came out. His last book, The Pioneers, was released in 2019. It explored the founding of Marietta, Ohio, an American settler's expansion into the old Northwest Territory. His publisher, Simon & Schuster, lists many of his accomplishments at davidmccullough.com. David, when I I hear you talk and when I I read through the book, it's like you must have been like a kid in a candy shop with all these original letters to read. I mean, it must have been... Oh, my. For most of my books, I've depended tremendously on the letters, the letters of John Adams and Abigail, the letters of Harry Truman, because you, they bring you into their private world. You can get to know these people in many ways better than you can know people in real life because in real life you don't get to read other people's mail. We don't write letters anymore, for one thing. But these letters are they're works of art. They are, and they are humbling because you realize once again they never even finished high school. What a blessing that we have these. I oh, mean, my goodness. It's conceivable they wouldn't have written, and then all of this richness yeah. behind the story. And, and, and their love of learning. Their lo- their, years later, Orville Wright was interviewed, and he said, would you agree with so many Americans that you and your brother are the perfect example of how far one can go in life, an American could go in life, who's had no advantages growing up. And he said, we grew up with the greatest advantage you could possibly have. And the man said, well, what is that, sir? And he said, we grew up in a home which stimulated and encouraged intellectual curiosity. David, let's just say you could have dinner with Wilbur or Orville tonight. Yes. What would you love to ask them, and and, uh, what's one thing you'd like to tell them? Well, I'd love to hear more about Wilbur's feelings on the great cathedral at Le Mans Mm -hmm. and what what was in his spirit that so responded to the art and architecture of his travels. And then I'd love to ask Orville why he refused to speak to Catherine, the sister, again when she announced she was going to get married. He thought she'd betrayed him, but I would like to hear. And he comes across as the selfish, mean guy, which he wasn't. He really wasn't. I'd like to hear his side of the story. If you could just tell them one thing, a hundred years after their their work, what would you tell them? I'd tell them that my admiration for them as human beings is greater even than my absolute awe at the working of their minds. Beautiful. David McCullough, thank you so much for all your work and the Wright Brothers. Thank you, sir. It's a real nice way to spend a day in Dayton, Ohio. On a lazy Sunday afternoon in 
Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton, Donna Bardsley, and Kazmara Hall. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling. Promotion support comes from Sheila Gerzoff, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find more at ricksteves.com slash radio.